0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. Today's episode, we're calling this a blast from the past. We're looking at old school iron, how fitness kind of got its roots, and how it's evolved over time, and where we are currently. And to kind of help me with that, because obviously, whenever you're talking about history, you've got a lot of ground to cover. Our good friend Eric Kaplan is back with us today. You might remember him from episode 11 when we were talking about core training. Uh, Eric is on Instagram at Eric Scott Kaplan. You can also find him on LinkedIn. He's a NSCA CSCS, so he really knows his stuff in the strength and conditioning world. He's also a student physical therapist. Uh, we can talk about all of his qualifications for uh, days and days here, but... Without going into too much, wasting too much of your time, Eric, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Dan.
1: I appreciate that introduction. I'm flattered.
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, you can never run out of good things to say about a guy who uh, still runs in a fanny pack, right? <laughs>
1: that's, a, that's absolutely right. That's a, that goes on the resume for sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so as we said, we're talking about old school iron today when we say you know old school fitness old school iron that looks old school what do you think of what comes to mind when we say that
1: well it's funny when when you brought this topic to my attention uh i think you immediately think arnold i think that's the guy that everybody looks at as like the pinnacle of old school fitness like he was like the gold standard back in the 70s so one of the first things I did when I started thinking about the topic was I went back and watched Pumping Iron, which is just a classic old school weightlifting documentary, but I kind of started watching it in a different light. I had, I had watched a documentary before. I think a lot of people that are interested in strength and health and wellness and weightlifting have. Um, but I was watching it in a very different light because I was kind of anticipating this conversation and I was spending a lot more time looking at the programming, which they don't spend a lot of time talking about because it's kind of, you know, introduced to the layperson, and they're not really going into the depths of you know, what they could potentially go into when it comes to fitness, but um, I was looking at the programming, I was looking at some of the nutrition stuff that they bring up, and really just the culture um, that was really the the baseline and the foundation of what fitness has become today, so I was I was looking at it that, that way, and you're looking at guys like Schwarzenegger and Frigno, um and just seeing how they built their bodies and the coaching that they had, and with limited knowledge when you look at it relative to what we have access to today and you just wonder like you know, if these guys are able to look like that and you know granted the, the steroid conversation might be might be a different podcast but <laughs> the guys that are able to look like that and to lift weight like that without all of the complex science it's like it really gets you thinking about like where we are in terms of fitness as an establishment fitness as an industry like maybe we're doing too much maybe we're thinking about this this in the wrong way and maybe there's a simpler way to go about things so when i think of old school iron i just think of like simplicity i just think about um loading and just the basic concepts that underlie building strength and hypertrophy and all the stuff that we still like to talk about today
0: right definitely and i like how you bring that up that we're almost overcomplicating fitness, it seems, because I mean, essentially their exercises, you know, they didn't have fancy machines and niche equipment for every little thing. Like they didn't have a belt hip thrust machine or booty blaster machines or Instagram workouts and Pinterest back then. They said, what can we do? We can press, we can pull. So they did that in pretty much any variation they did standing yeah. presses, bench presses, incline, decline, dumbbell, barbell, bent press. Not that you see that anymore, yeah. and the list goes on and on and on, and I mean it wasn't just you know doing a three by ten of each of these movements. There was the five by five came out, German volume training ten by ten, or um Arnold himself was famous for. Uh, it was in, I think it was in his book, New Encyclopedia of Modern Bodybuilding, or uh, I listened to a lot of his uh, talks and different shows and that sort of thing. He's on a lot of podcasts and you kind of get stuff blurred sometimes, but he talked about these squat sh- sessions him and his friends would have on Saturdays where they would literally drag a barbell and a squat rack and stuff out in the middle of the woods and just spend the whole afternoon doing squats. Like three, yeah. four hours of barbell squats. And then he said that they would crawl back out and get the equipment the next day. And you just, yeah, you don't hear about stuff like that anymore. And you don't hear of anyone picking one exercise like that and literally doing it for hours. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's the product.
1: I think we've veered away from strategy like that because... If there's one thing that we know a lot more about now than we did then, it's probably recovery and the importance <laughs> of recovery. And as I was watching, I'm going to keep kind of alluding to pumping iron just because I thought it was like a really interesting example of, you know, where we've come from. But when you look at that documentary and you just see the way that they're just destroying their bodies every single day, like the, the, the overload principle, they were working to a T. I mean, they, that was the principle that they based everything around. It was basically just working out to exhaustion. And they were probably losing the recovery piece compared to what we know now about the importance of sleep and the occasional rest day and deloading and all of that good stuff. You know, They weren't really employing those principles to any significant degree because it was just all about beating their bodies to the ground every single day. And that's when you get into the conversation of you know, the bodybuilders that became famous, like Arnold and Frigno and all them, like the the ones that became famous were expressing genetics. You know, they were expressing their phenotype for what a bodybuilder can potentially be if you have the genetic gift to be a bodybuilder. So they had the ability to beat themselves into the ground like that and go out into the woods and just smash their legs for hours on end and then crawl away from it (laughs) fairly unscathed. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what their recovery looked like and what that process was. But I I imagine they probably were back in the gym the next day doing legs all over again. So oh, most likely. Yeah. So, (laughs) so again, I I think that they had some principles that we still use like progressive overload and stuff like that. I don't think it was as dialed as we, as the, the technique that we're using today, but I think that they were still using that, that principle very effectively. But then losing out in the recovery piece, so you wonder—you wonder if they were to employ that a little bit more efficiently, what those guys going to look like,
0: right? And I like how you said it's the theme of more is better, and we saw that in their nutrition approach as well. Uh, Schwarzenegger was recommending if you had a hard time gaining muscle, drink a gallon of cow's milk every day, whole milk, and. I'm sure you would definitely gain something from drinking that. I don't know if it would be muscle or something else. Um, But the other one that comes to mind was the classic example of Stallone in Rocky 39 or whatever (laughs) number they were on at the time um, when he was eating eggs, whole eggs and coffee. That was his diet um, to Uh, get to 2.7% body fat. and. It it's just extreme measures to get what they wanted physically, and obviously there was a lot less. I don't want to say disregard for the health effects, but I think a lot less knowledge about what it was going to do to them long term.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, nutrition is def nutrition science is definitely not where it needs to be, and a lot not where a a lot of people think it is. I think that there is a lot of skepticism for good reason. There's a lot of variation in opinion on what makes good nutrition and what doesn't and what's good for an athlete and what's good for a bodybuilder. And and obviously, that it's very individual, and there's a lot of variance there. But, you know, Schwarzenegger was famous for saying, like, I try to take in a gram of protein for every pound of body weight that I have, which is just absolutely insane. I don't know if he was actually doing that. <laughs> But he it was an oversimplified approach to basically say I'm going to consume as much protein as possible in a single day, and I'm going to see how my body evolves in response to that. And I think because there was less science, there was a lot more observation, and there was a lot more individual observation. So what do I personally respond to with this type of training and joined with this type of nutrition? So again, Arnold had special genetics, obviously, guys of the like had special genetics and they may have responded exceptionally well to a hundred, 200 grams of protein, 300 grams of protein. I don't even know how you achieve that, but <laughs> they may have responded that well because they were genetically gifted enough to have that type of response, that type of anabolic response. And, and I think that they were able to hone that craft really effectively because there was just a lot of trial and error. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to employ this, this workout, I'm gonna go after, you know, this style workout, which again was usually a very heavy overloaded style, high volume, high weight. And I'm gonna couple it with this proportion of protein and just see what happens. They're not referring to papers, they're not referring to any in-depth science of any type of significant quality. So it really was more of a trial and error process. And I think we do lose sight of that because there is so much individual variance today that we need to be focusing more on what works for the individual not so much what, you know, so-and-so paper says.
0: Agreed. It's all about tailoring your fitness to what works best for you. And luckily, if you need help with that, both Eric and myself are personal trainers, so feel free to reach out to us uh, for help with that. But I like how you said the observational approach was very big at the time, how people were kind of looking at you know, what's working for this guy or that girl or whatever. And then they themselves went and did that. And I think you still see some of that to a certain extent in the gyms today. Um, Obviously, there's a lot less people in the gym because of the pandemic right now. But, you know, you still go in the gym and you'll notice over time, maybe someone in there really has their stuff together. You know, they're benching 315, squatting 405 for reps. Um, you know, for us, Eric is that guy. Um, you know, he's, Absolutely. he's the guy that throws the 70 pound resistance band on to do weighted pull-ups or resisted pull-ups and <laughs> the band, uh, drags his anchor weight, which is probably like a hundred pound dumbbell, uh, with him along for the ride, um, And it's just... Don't give
1: me too much credit
0: here. Yeah, subtle flux here. But, um, (laughs) you know, over time, you'll notice that other people that go to the gym at the same time kind of shift their workouts. And instead of doing, like, straight isolation movements, if they notice Eric doing a lot of heavy compound lifts, they'll probably gradually progress to that. Or, you know, I think we can both say we've gotten people to come up to us before who just have total like bizarre looks on their face like what are you currently doing why are you doing it and why is it so effective for you Um, right
1: yeah i think that a lot of this just digs into the culture of fitness as it stands today and kind of the evolution of fitness Mm -hmm. like when you talk about old school fitness really bodybuilding was the gold standard. It's just like, if you were looking to work out, you'd worked out in a very specific bodybuilding style. You were trying to develop a, an aesthetic physique. You were trying to develop as much muscle as humanly possible. So all the technique there was geared towards a very simplistic goal. And I don't want to say simplistic in, in terms of it being easy to achieve a physique, like some of the old school bodybuilders, but the goal was fairly straightforward. And over time, that's changed quite a bit because there has been more science, there has been recognition of variance between individuals, and we also recognize the importance of strength and conditioning for a variety of different occupations, a variety of different um, sports-specific type deals. So you have a lot more focus in a lot of different areas, and that speaks to the way that fitness has branched out into just a massive industry that has a lot of different categories, whether you're a sports performance guy, whether you're a CrossFitter, whether you're a traditional bodybuilder, a physique competition person, or you're just the general fitness type, which I, I kind of consider myself. I don't really consider myself, you know, someone that has a very specific goal and I'm trying to achieve, you know, this level of optimization. I just, I'm in it for the general health benefits, the longevity And if aesthetic is a side effect of that, then so be it. But, you know, I, I definitely have more of a broad approach, but to get back to the point, it's like, you see the way that fitness changes from person to person and goal to goal. And, you know, what, what movement practice are you trying to augment? What are you trying to achieve? And that's really where the changes come from, because we just see value in a variety of different places now. So the. The lacrosse player is training a lot different than the aesthetic bodybuilder, and it's just it is created a lot of divisiveness, a lot of divide in the ideals and methodologies, but it's also created this sense of individuality, and I think that that's kind of a good thing.
0: Agreed, and <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that because it seems like each individual group has their own identity, so to speak. I think yeah. you know most commonly we think of CrossFitters like they identify as I'm a CrossFitter, um, mm-hmm. but to a certain extent that's true with all of these different groups we think of. Uh, you right. know, like we said with the classic bodybuilding, you're probably mentally picturing that guy walking around with the gallon jug of water who's <laughs> taking like 20 grams of creatine every day. Um, it's just interesting how it's almost like people identify based on their fitness anymore. I mean, even just look at the fitness brands we have in the 21st century here, Gymshark, Lululemon, it's become socially acceptable to wear these kind of gym clothing and gym wares anywhere. And it doesn't matter if you work out or not, you can own gym wear and go wherever to, you know, whatever occasion with that. And, you know, I think 20 years ago, if you showed up to the grocery store in, you know, baggy gray champion sweatpants and a big hoodie and you just got out of the gym all sweaty and all that sort of thing, you'd, you'd get some weird looks for doing something like that. But now it's almost like it's expected that someone is going to be there like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the sh- the shameless sweaty grout is still very much in play, today, <laughs> so let's not count that out. But... Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. It's like it's almost this case of is is your fitness behavior driving you into driving you into those brands and driving you into that identity or is your identity driving your behaviors? Like which of the two is it? And maybe it's a combination of the two, but I think that there might be a little bit of an issue when you look at someone that is just jumping into the a community just for the sake of jumping into a community without any specific goal. They're kind of just going along for the ride. And Grant, I, I'm not taking anything away from anybody that just wants to get fit and wants to stay in shape and they need a little bit of a community push to achieve that. Honestly, I think that's incredible. Like I, I have some issues with the state of CrossFit, for example, and some of the movements that they're, uh, they see as extremely valuable you know, whatever. But when it comes down to it, it's, it's a community that's helping people get fit and stay in shape. And I think that there's a lot of value there. But that being said, it's like just someone that's coming off the street and jumping into a community like that with no experience and no knowledge of, of, you know, the foundations of fitness or that, or where they need to be to, to start a practice like that. Um, that can be detrimental, it can be challenging on the body. And and I think that people need to be a little bit more in tune with that. So definitely something to think about.
0: Agreed. And I like to come back to this classic metaphor. Um, I've used it probably far too many times. Uh, You know, you can be an individual driving your own car, and you're in control over where you're going but maybe you're not going to get there as fast or maybe you don't know the best way to get to where you're going. Eventually, you'll get there and you have the benefit of being in control the whole time. Well, some of these other fitness groups and classes, and I'm not going to use the word cults to describe them, but some people do. um, They're kind of like riding a bus. You're going to get to where you need to go you're not in control over how you get there and you're going the same place as everyone else, but you're going to get there. So I think it's almost a little bit of a trade-off on which one you prefer. Do you prefer to drive yourself? Do you prefer to get on the bus? Or do you prefer to try and find a way to split it amongst the two? And I think You know, when we look classically, it was very much individuals on their own journey. And they talked a lot about how fitness influenced their whole life, not just, you know, them working out like, you know, a lot of Arnold's big life lessons came from the gym and lifting and it really influenced how he lived. Um, So I think there's a little bit of a difference in that journey piece to it, too.
1: Yeah, definitely. And again, I think that that changes depending on what sector of fitness you identify with or, or maybe the sector that you just find yourself in. So when you look back to the foundations of the fitness industry and you look back to old school bodybuilding as being kind of the gold standard of what it meant to be fit, it's like, okay, like what's motivating these people? Do they want to get healthy? Do they want to increase their longevity or are they doing it because they aspire to be in a bodybuilding show or they want to look like a certain person. So maybe there was a certain level of vanity that stimulated this industry and for better or for worse. I mean, it obviously led to some great things where exercise physiology and exercise science and kinesiology, there's been massive changes in the industry from a scientific standpoint. So you certainly can not discredit the fact that just because it came from a place that maybe you don't agree with now, like it still has come to fruition in a way that it's benefiting people. And, and that's really the goal. It's to, it's to change people's health, change people's mindset and get people into, uh, into a better, into a better place physically. So yeah, I think that, that we've come a long way, but there's still, there's still a whole lot of work to do. I would say in terms of exercise physiology and just general exercise science, if you, to apply it to the lifespan like we're probably in our infancy still like so mm-hmm. a couple of years old compared to other disciplines and other sciences so we're we're gonna see even more evolution in the coming years i mean it, it's gonna go a long way from where it is now and whether the science is driving that or the communities and cults <laughs> whatever <laughs> you want to call them whatever might be driving that uh, it's
0: driving it's it's going to keep progressing and it's going to keep evolving and i'm i'm pretty excited to see where it goes agreed and uh i like how you say you know you it's exciting to see where this is going to go because this is kind of like a big frontier you know we talk about how america has no major frontiers left we've already explored all of the country And yet we keep finding new things to explore and we don't know what the future holds. Um, One thing thinking about, you know, looking ahead here where I think fitness is going to have a lot of power is we're almost starting to see instant gratification in fitness combined Mm -hmm. with the delayed gratification that we've always had. Obviously in fitness, you're not going to see results in two days so you have to have the patience for delayed gratification now with the different technologies and engineering that is possible thanks to our you know 21st century modern tech kind of life there's apps you can get that can instantly give you feedback on your form there's apps you can get that calculate how much weight you lifted in a gym session and I Mm. did it once. And, uh, you know, there was a leg day where I apparently lifted 80,000 pounds in total. Now, obviously we had a little bit of leg press that day because, you know, we wanted to bump those numbers up a little bit if we were tracking it. Um, Totally fair. But it's just, and with the machine uh, reference to there, you know, there's literally new exercise machines coming out almost every month, it seems. And the innovation is endless. So, you know, you're never going to get tired of, you know, oh, another barbell workout. Oh, another dumbbell workout. Because there's always something new coming out. Some new creative exercise, piece of equipment, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're in an age of
1: information and also at the same time an age of misinformation. (laughs) And I think from that becomes also an age of novelty, which I mean, fitness novelty has been around forever. I mean, when you look at the old school fitness machines with Terry Bradshaw, like in a weird elastic cage and he's moving his body (laughs) in all kinds of weird positions, like at the time that was like gold standard material. That was like a fantastic new innovation that people were trying to latch onto, but it was Obviously when we look back on it, a, a massive marketing ploy and you wonder how many things that are out there today are also massive marketing ploys and we're kind of just mind we're kind of just blind to it because that's how these things typically work. But I think when you think about where we are as a fitness industry and where we've come from, you can really apply it to if you've heard of the Dunning Kruger effect. The Dunning Kruger Effect is basically What you know versus what you, or what you think you know versus what you actually know. Mm -hmm. And when you plot that on a graph, it's, it's, you get this parabolic curve where it's like when you first start learning about something, you know, at the very beginning, you know that you know nothing, but that's why you're entering the, that's why you're entering the practice. That's why you're starting this whole fitness thing. You know that you don't know anything and you want to know more. And then within like a couple months, all of a sudden you think that you know everything and that's where you start getting to the peak of the curve. Like, I think I know everything, but any expert in the field or or supposed expert knows that that person probably knows nothing and they're looking at that person from the other side of the graph, the far right of the graph. So I think that that is rampant in the fitness industry because there are just so many cultures, there is so much information at people's fingertips and people have so much accessibility to opinion and whether those opinions are accurate or not, you know, jury's out on all of that. But yeah, we're just in a, We're just in an age where there's just there's such a massive information, and you can go so many di- different directions with that, and you can interpret it, that in so many different ways. And when it comes down to it, even the hard science still has disputers. You know, there, is, there are people that don't agree with current training principles that are seen as gold standards, just because the science backs it up. I mean, there's, there's a lot of information out there and, and that drives variance like we've been talking about this whole time.
0: Agreed. And obviously to make all of these things happen in the first place, you need to have a lot of motivation and drive because you know, someone like me, I get up at 4am every day. And Mm. I say that to some people, and they just look at me like I'm crazy. Like, you know, I, like most people struggle to roll out of bed at seven in the morning sometimes. Uh And I think it's interesting how the motivation piece, I'll say has shifted, because, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the Arnold era was the magazines, the television, um, you know, I think of the classic Jack LaLanne, uh, who really popularized television fitness. And I think it was his 70th birthday. He had a big fitness promotion on TV where he linked 70 rowboats together and jumped in the water and swam <laughs> pulling 70 rowboats. Um, just all these kind of crazy things that were used to hype up fitness. And, yeah. you know, we think about it now and we just laugh. But now we have I mean how many different TV shows that do the same thing it's just the painter's picture the painting is pictured or painted in a different light so we have Titan Games we have Ninja Warrior we have um Tough Mudder came out with their own or Spartan Racing came out with their own TV show it's the same stuff it's just a new way to do it so to speak
1: right yeah and when it comes down to it like what are the drawbacks to any to any sector of the industry what are is there is there a problem with the titan games or is there a problem with these these kind of glorified fitness instructors that are on TV all the time i don't know i mean maybe they're in it for the wrong reasons maybe they have a vested interest in something outside of people's general well-being but when it comes down to it it's just good to see people motivated it's good to see people interested and You know, we're still in the process of working the kinks out of each area of fitness and trying to get people to be in it for the right reasons. But it's a very subjective experience. You know what I mean? It's not. We can't knock people for just wanting to get up and do something. So whatever community they want to get involved in, whatever workout equipment they want to use to get themselves up and moving. To some degree, I think that that's usually okay. It's a movement practice. You're employing something that is going to benefit your health. And at the point that it stops benefiting your health, that's when it becomes a real problem. Once you're getting injured, once you're overtraining, once you realize that you're getting zero results and you're not achieving the things that you set out to achieve, then you got to start reworking things a little bit and figuring out why you're not where you want to be. So until that becomes a problem, I would say there aren't that many movement practices out there that are are really detrimental to somebody. I think it just depends on what your unique goals are.
0: Right. At the end of the day, exercise is good. And, you know, I I think personally I fall into the trap of talking about functional training too much. And this yeah. is more functional yeah. than that. At the end of the day, if you are getting stronger and if you are getting in better cardiovascular shape, then you are improving your functionality. So... Yeah. With that, anything can be classified as functional.
1: Exactly. And I'm guilty of using the word functional way too much. <laughs> it's just kind of one of those words that you bring up because it sounds nice and it sounds like it's more valuable if you call something functional. But, like, what is functional? Functional to who? Is, is, is a, you know, some vertical pressing pattern functional to a wrestler? I don't, maybe I, it's like you have to think about. Who you're talking about and who who is the person that is reaping these functional benefits benefits supposedly so the word functional is super overused that's not to say that there aren't movement patterns that you see across populations and you see across the lifespan that are extremely beneficial to people so whenever i bring in my with my personal training clients whenever i use the word functional i try to make sure that to that person it actually is functional and generally speaking, the the classic movement patterns the squat, the hinge, uh, the hip hinge, the lunge, the vertical press, the horizontal press, the, the horizontal pull you know these are these are the classic functional movement patterns, and I think that that we can safely call them functional just because they they are the big movements that end up branching out into all the sm- the smaller movements that that end up being maybe overemphasized depending on what community you're talking about but they're they're foundational they're functional and, and i think that you can say that safely but once you're getting to the point where you're doing like single leg single arm balance on a trapeze with like a kettlebell in your left hand and you're doing the tango at the same time like i all of a sudden i'm just questioning like what you're considering functional and why is that functional to you so yeah it's an overused term but just to get back to where we started this conversation like with all the movement patterns i just mentioned like what were the what were the classic old school iron bodybuilders doing they're doing all of the movements that we now consider to be the foundational functional movement patterns. So they're obviously doing something right. They had the right idea. They were incorporating heavy loaded compound movements that were basically the starting point for all other movements. So there was something to that. And I think that that's probably why they saw really good results.
0: Agreed. And um, I think Brett Contreras just posted something about this the other day. If you're looking to get stronger or faster or just, overall improve your physical functioning in a time efficient manner, starting with these large muscle compounds is a great way to go about it. You know, you're not going to be able to bench press 405 if you're not doing bench press. If your shoulder workout consists of lateral raises and the reverse fly machine, don't expect to be doing a 225 pound shoulder press anytime soon. But if you're someone who Chases these heavy compound lifts like the bench press, the squat, the deadlift, and all these other variations and movements we've talked about, you're probably going to be decently strong at these various isolation exercises. If you go in and you start squatting real heavy two or three times a week and you build your squat up to 405, the odds that you are going to be able to rack the leg extension machine are a lot higher. Than the odds of you squatting 405 if you just do leg extensions
1: exactly and i think yeah mentioning all those accessory lifts and how they apply to the compound lip i think that that's that's crucial and we need to be thinking about that but at the same time i think a lot of the the compound movements expose areas where you need to start incorporating the accessory movements if you have An anterior pelvic tilt when you're coming down to a squat or if you have you know a weight shift when you're going into a heavy squat maybe we can start incorporating accessory exercises that can start waking up muscles that were basically sleeping on you during those heavy load lifts and that can optimize performance to achieve that particular goal in adding weight to your squat so i think that's where the the experts in the fitness industry come into play and people that have seen a lot of other people move and worked with a lot of clients or, you know, been involved in a lot of seminars and had the chance to really see how humans move. I think that that's where that comes into play, watching somebody move uh, and deciding whether or not they need specific exercise to address areas of instability or weakness. And before you start piling all those accessories on, make sure that they're necessary. Make sure that they actually are helping that person achieve the goal that they're setting out to achieve or load the lift that they're hoping to continue to progressively load. So yeah, that's where we come into play to, to kind of facilitate those type of progressions.
0: Agreed. And I like how you said that it's a progression, you know, you're not just going to start off you know day one of training doing weighted pull-ups you know you're gonna have to start with the lat pull down and then eventually assisted pull-ups and then pull-ups without weight and then uh you know progress from there and having someone who knows how to push you through that chain can really make a difference in your training results and longevity and you know with that Since I think combined, the two of us probably have, I would say, at least 20 years in total worth of training experience between ourselves and clients and all that sort of thing, maybe even more. Um, Let's look at some of our own workouts. So I know this is the thing we're really looking forward to here, the evolution of our own workouts. So throw it back to those high school football days. What were we looking at? (laughs) I I,
1: almost, I got kind of caught up in the rest of the stuff that we were talking about and I forgot what, <laughs> where this conversation originally came from. And just as a small backstory, I was back home with my family for the holidays and that meant that I was kind of restricted to the iron dungeon in my basement of my parents' house that I created when I was like 16 or kind of created over time, I guess you could say. And I was basically restricted to a bench I had a pull up bar, I had a dip rack, and I had some plates and I was sitting there looking at it like originally like when I first walked out I was kind of discouraged. I was like, "Man, I'm not going to get a good workout in. This kind of sucks. Like it's just not going to be what I want this morning. I was looking to get off to a good start, but I'm kind of working through. I'm working with what I have. I'm doing some of these compound lifts that we were talking about, some of the foundational movements. I was like, "Man, like it feels really good to get back to this, just this simple style of weightlifting that I kind of missed I didn't realize how much I missed it until I started doing it again and it got me thinking it got both of us thinking about this where where we started and what got us going and for me it was high school football which I think a lot of people probably in our generation started weightlifting during high school sports I think that that's fairly common and I think that's a great starting point um, from a hormonal standpoint, it's when you start being able to see physical progressions. So it, it is a good place to start. Not that I don't think it's valuable to start earlier than that, but I think that is a good starting point in terms of age. So I feel really fortunate to have had that foundation. Sorry if you a dog barking in the background. Um, I feel really fortunate to have had that experience as, as a teenager because it really laid the groundwork for my entire future in this industry and in my own personal fitness endeavors. So looking back at the the old school football workouts, I think you first have to look at who's coaching it. So (laughs) when you look at, when you look at most teams in high school, like you're probably not going to have a strength and conditioning coach on staff. And if you do, you're at like a really high end private school or whatever that has funding for that type of thing. But like when I was in high school, you didn't even technically have to have an athletic trainer on the field during games and practices, I don't think. So you can imagine that the strength and conditioning coaches probably were not a top priority and probably not in the budget of most high schools. So you're being coached by the most jacked guy on your coaching staff, which, um, you know, could be a good thing. It could be a pretty bad thing depending on what his ideologies are. But in my case, I was coached by a, a former college football player, really, really strong guy. He was putting up like, you know, 350 on the bench while we were all just struggling to get the bar off our chests. And uh, so it was good to have somebody that, that obviously had a foundation for fitness. He had a little bit of experience experience in strength and conditioning, but but it's interesting to think that his base of knowledge, which probably came from a strength and conditioning coach that coached him during college, was basically being relayed to me and feeding into my foundation for what I know today. So that's it's interesting to think about it like that, how it really is a chain reaction of knowledge that just gets sent down the line and eventually manifests into your into your personal fitness endeavors. So yeah, for me, it was a lot of a lot of squatting I remember squatting pretty much every day in, and <laughs> in, during the season in high school because that was seen as the most valuable exercise so a lot of squatting a lot of hex bar deadlifts, a lot of bench press a lot of incline bench press and a lot of bicep curls and that was the <laughs> that was the full gamut of like the daily football workout they weren't super organized they weren't properly periodized they the selection was fairly poor looking back on it but again, it, it's where I developed my baseline strength. It's where everything that I've, that I've accumulated up until this point started. So I can't really knock the programming that hard if it was, if it was foundational to where I'm at today. So, uh, and I think that that's probably a fairly common experience in terms of people getting their start in high school and having those types of sort of disorganized, dysfunctional, but weirdly effective uh, weightlifting programs. Uh, my, my only complaint, really, is is the periodization piece of it, where we were still doing, like, super heavy-loaded 1RM testing, like, mid-season. Just not, not a good idea, really. We probably should have been more sports-specific at that point and working on some higher volume, again, more sports-specific movements, but we didn't, and... And I made it out unscathed for the most part, outside of a couple of injuries that I probably could have avoided with a little bit of corrective exercise or prehab. But,
0: you know, it is what it is. <laughs> no, I uh, I get that. And I have to agree with you. It's funny how, you know, we went to very different high schools, very different areas, yet we had similar experiences. We still pushed bench, squat, deadlift, and their variations. Um, we pushed pull-ups, dips, uh, barbell rows, um, dumbbell shrugs as well. It seemed like everyone did dumbbell shrugs. Um, you oh, you, gra- yeah. you grabbed the uh, 50-pound dumbbells because they were always on the top rack, so you didn't yeah. have to bend down and get the uh, other ones. And you just grabbed them and you shrugged them until you felt like stopping, I guess. You didn't even know why you were doing them. You just, that's why you were shrugging your shoulders.
1: Yeah, the amount of visible neck <laughs> was directly correlated with
0: Um, And we did these absolutely stupid burnouts. Um, I've never touched burnouts like that since then, Um, but obviously there's something uh, exciting when you're a young, uh, inexperienced weightlifter about chasing the pump. Um, We did one that was um, a 30-second rep, one rep of bench press with a mini barbell straight into barbell skull crushers to failure well as you know uh, the skull crusher is kind of a compromising position when you're doing it with the bar coming to your uh, forehead and you know you had kids busting up 50 60 70 of of these and their arms are shaking each rep and uh, it, it made for some interesting situations um but again it's interesting how you know, the foundations are relatively the same, despite mm-hmm. being in very different areas. Now, the one thing I will say is we had no concept of proper form whatsoever. None. Uh, none. Okay. I wasn't sure about that. But yeah, the whole concept of form and grip width and even just keeping your back straight was kind of thrown out the window in high school.
1: Oh, yeah, I, I clearly significant low back strain that I sustained during what at the time I figured to be a pretty heavy loaded hex bar deadlift and I was it happened and I was like okay I'm never deadlifting again this is the worst exercise of all time little did I know there was just a right and wrong way to perform that movement but like the coaches knew I had the injury the the strength coach or you know he was just an assistant coach knew I had the injury but there was no inception of why that injury happened in the first place and it was because i was not told how to perform the exercise i clearly remember walking into our high school weight room for the first time and it was with my older brother who was on the varsity team at that point and i was like in eighth grade or whatever and he was pound for pound really strong at the time like he was probably pound for pound the strongest guy on the team I remember him teaching me how to deadlift, quote, unquote, teaching me how to deadlift. <laughs> and I was like, I, you know, I got in the hex bar. I was like, all right, so what do I do? There was like, I don't know, 100 pounds on there. So, of course, I didn't start with the bar or the movement pattern. I went straight to loading 100 pounds on the bar. I on <laughs> um, so I said, okay, like, what do I do? What's the form look like? And he said, oh, it's deadlift. You just pick it up. Like, you just, <laughs> just reach over and you pick it up. That's the whole, that's the whole movement. Said just don't don't round your back too much, which I guess at the time was a pretty good cue. But yeah, there was very little emphasis on doing things correctly. It was all about what the goal was, but there was very little semblance of progress mixed in there, or progression mixed in there, and and how we get to loading movements and maybe being able to do the movement before you apply any weight to the movement or ensuring that you have adequate range of motion to perform a resisted exercise in that pattern. So. Yeah, looking back, like there was mayhem in that weight room, but again, there was a lot of value there as well because it was where a lot of what I have now came from. So,
0: agreed. And with that, just to kind of give a picture, because um, you know, not everyone knows what your workouts look like. How is your fitness kind of adapted to today?
1: Yeah, well, I think it it goes back to what we were talking about maybe 10, 15 minutes ago where I think I, I look at the foundational movements first. So uh, I'm generally working in movement patterns. So fairly basic in that sense, I, I push, I pull, and, and that's where that's where everything else comes from. So, um, and then I, and then I'm looking at those, those foundational movement patterns and I'm working in planes of movement. So, So I have a vertical pushing day, and then I have a horizontal pushing day. And then I'm kind of seeing where I'm at with the heavy loaded movements. So I'm seeing where I'm for, you know, heavy loaded vertical shoulder press, for example. And then I'm examining sort of where my deficits are in that foundational movement pattern, and I'm applying accessories accordingly. So, you know, if I'm having some some instability at the shoulder associated with my heavy loaded vertical press when I'm trying to get a little bit more weight on the bar, I'm noticing that instability. I'm noticing some core stability, some pinching in the low back. Now I have some evidence to support where I'm going from there. So I have some corrective exercise that I can apply. I have a nice foundation of accessory exercise I can apply, and, apply, and then I have some core stability stuff that I work can work in to give myself a more com- uh, comprehensive approach to that base movement. So that's kind of how I work. I look at, I look at the base movements. I look vertical. Horizontal pull. I look at horizontal, uh, or I'm sorry, vertical horizontal press, horizontal pull, and then squat hinge movements and lunge movements. And I'm looking at the areas of instability, areas where I need to improve, and then I'm just dialing the accessories based off of off of those things. So it's interesting when I think about like what my ultimate goal is. Like I don't know if I have like an ultimate goal. I just want to get better at moving, and I want to be able to apply resistance and increasing progressively, increasing that resistance as I get better at the foundational movements. And that's just where my whole movement practice comes from. It's just, um, it's, it's movements that are conducive to building strength and building longevity and, and making me feel good and feeling accomplished and practicing discipline. And For me, that's really what it's all about.
0: Right, I'll, uh, I'll have to agree with you on that. And uh, I think our training styles tend to be pretty similar. Um, I know you mentioned periodization a little bit. And uh, for those aren't familiar with it, it's essentially working on specific things for a specific period of time. So you might have a hypertrophy block where you're doing those moderate rep ranges for four to six weeks. And then you might follow it with a strength block, which is, you know, heavier weights, lower reps, four weeks there. And then you might Follow that with a deload, so maybe a week of same exercises, just, you know, half the weight, just to kind of promote longevity in training, so to speak. And I kind of use that training style, but I don't swap the exercises much, I swap how I do them. So maybe for one period, I do a instability block and you see me doing all the funky things from Instagram that I post with the earthquake setup and chaos setups and, you know, the TRX or the BOSU ball and that sort of thing. Maybe then I follow it with a strength uh, setup. So I just built more stability in my joints. Now I'm going to add strength to it, and I'm going to do more um, time in those heavy compound lifts. So I'll back off of... Things like dumbbell goblet squats a little bit and do more hip thrust, do more RDL, more time under tension, weighted stretching, that sort of thing. So, you know, there's no one right or wrong way to go about exercise here. You can take these basic movement patterns and apply them a thousand different ways and suit them however you feel is best for you.
1: Exactly. and. I think that there's this idea that modern periodization can only be applied to sport. And, you know, the, the NSCA, for example, really encourages sport specific training. That's what a lot of their emphasis is on, is periodizing towards a sport where essentially the periodization is arranged in a way that you start with very broad specificity in the off-season, like as soon as the season's finished, you have a break period where you're not doing anything for a couple of weeks, you're letting the body recover, you're just doing some very low-level activity, letting the body kind of get back to homeostasis, and then and then you start with really broad-ranging specificity, so you're building a foundation for strength, starting with hypertrophy, then you start moving into strength, then you start moving into power, and ultimately by this season you're you've evolved from power into sport specific movements you're doing balance coordination not a ton of resistance but fairly high volume and then recovery periods that are conducive to success in that particular sport so obviously that's going to change from sport to sport depending on how many games per week you have or whatever it may be so i think there's this idea that That periodization can only apply to a sport I just think that that's completely incorrect all periodization is saying is you need to start with a foundation and then get more specific as you go so it's foundationally you start with the movement pattern make sure you can move appropriately make sure that you can move comfortably making sure you have adequate mobility and then you start just working on making the muscles stronger increasing motor unit activation making sure The muscles are able to fire properly and then you can start loading and then you're getting into lower rep ranges and really pushing strength and then from that strength because because strength is a component of power now i'm ready to start incorporating power i can start getting into hang cleans power cleans, snatches stuff like that which i i don't do nearly enough of but i really should uh you can start getting into power because power is just i'm going to use the word functional tsk tsk i know i'm going to use the word functional very loosely but you get into power, which is maybe a little bit more functional. The body should be able to produce force and it should be able to do it fast. We don't, we don't really tend to do things throughout our day that it's moving a huge amount of weight very slowly through space. It doesn't really happen that often, but it can be good for a bunch of other reasons. Um, but you know, small tangent. Um, so so yeah, it, there's just a general fitness component to periodization that you can apply and you don't have to ultimately get to a season for to apply that you can just be doing it because it is a really natural progression to move the body and to and to improve general general fitness general strength through this kind of systemized approach i'm not saying it's perfect there's actually some evidence that in the sporting world that suggests that periodization might be it might not be substantiated There's claims that it's the correct way to get, to get an athlete ready for a season. So there's there's a little bit of um, diversity and thought there. But when it comes down to it, if you want to get stronger and if you want to take a systemized approach, periodization is a good way to go.
0: Exactly. Start from a foundation, and you know I just think of the classic building a house. You have to have a foundation and have that in order before you start worrying about the interior decor and the color of the walls and all that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, go ahead and try to paint the shutters before you've actually built the house, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of hard to do that without them being there.
0: Exactly. And like I said at the start of the show, if uh, you want to reach out to either of us, you know you can find us at Body on Instagram or email us at brawnbodytraining at com eric at Eric Scott Kaplan on instagram uh he's also on linkedin and if you need any more specific uh contact information for him feel free to let me know and i will be happy to link uh the two of you so with that eric thank you for coming back on the show it's uh it says a lot when someone comes back for a second time here i don't know if it says something good or bad but we'll leave that up for uh individual analysis. It was my pleasure, Dan. Thank you. So, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Bron Body Podcast.